So the first reading tonight is from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 and going through to verse 32, and that's on page 796. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. Hi everyone, the next um, reading is from Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 11. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation.
So, so, whoa. Now everyone can hear me. Greetings, we're just going to turn this light on over here. Much better. Welcome along to church tonight. My name's Steve, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, There are a number of new people here tonight and we really uh, do hope you feel warmly welcomed to church. And as Hayley mentioned, we will share dinner together afterwards, so please do stick around for that. Uh, Tonight we discuss a pretty difficult topic. How can a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have, many times. Uh, It is a question that is loaded with assumptions. Assumptions that we have about God and what he is like. Assumptions that we have about us and what we are like. Assumptions about what it means to be loving. And of course all the assumptions that we carry in our minds about hell. Now we'll all have different assumptions about each of these things as we sit here tonight. Uh, Some of those assumptions will be true. Some of those assumptions will be false. And we're going to unpack what the Bible says about this topic. Now, as we, uh, as we do this, let me be up front. This is uh, it's not an easy topic for me to speak about, and it's not an easy topic for you to listen to. I can't think of many more difficult topics for us to consider than hell. It's difficult for us to start with because God is God and we are not. Uh, and to fit all the knowledge of God into our mind to be to condense the ocean into a tiny little cup. It is impossible. And so we come to this topic with some humility. It's a difficult topic for some of us to consider because the idea that a hell and a loving God could ever exist in the same space seems almost too terrible to consider. And it is painful for others of us who are here who are afraid of dying and are afraid of where they will be one second after they die and are afraid that perhaps hell is the destiny that awaits. Tonight, as we discuss this, I want you to put aside and put down all the assumptions that you have about each of these things as we look to the Bible. The Bible is God's written revelation to us. And as we open it up, we're going to explore three key truths. We're going to see what does the Bible say about people? What does it say about us? We're going to see what does the Bible say about hell? And what does the Bible say about God's love? Tonight, we will discover some truths that will crush us and even bring us to tears. And we will also discover truth that is greater and more wonderful than our imagination could possibly even consider. And so as we come to this topic, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God, who has written these words for us to help us to understand them and for our lives to be changed by them. So please pray with me. Our great God, you are 
merciful and you are gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Your word is true and you are good. Father, we ask tonight that you would help us to see the truth about ourselves. Please help us to see the truth about hell and help us to see the truth about your incredible love. We ask this for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. To start off on a relatively light note, I have been watching uh, this time around, I've never seen it before, this series on TV, The Biggest Loser. Has anyone been watching that? You're either embarrassed or I'm alone. Uh, On The Biggest Loser, people will compete over a period of a couple of months uh, with personal trainers to see who can lose the most amount of weight. And the first day was, uh, of the show is, is really moving because you've got a whole bunch of people who are extremely overweight and they are stripped down, their clothes are taken off, they're in very unflattering lycra or other types of gym gear. And in front of all their friends and their family, they get up on the scales Uh, and the scales do what scales do, and they kind of calculate what their weight is, and they look, and they see, and tears come to their eyes. And you hear, I'm Damien, and I weigh 234 kilograms. And it's surprisingly moving, because for these people, they've been living in denial of their weight and their situation for such a long time. And they're surrounded by friends and family who are, in many ways, quite like them. And this day, on this day, they suddenly realise when everything is stripped bare, what they are really like. It is a reality check for them. In Romans chapter 1, this passage that uh, Rach just read to us before is a reality check for us as God looks not just at the outward appearance, but the Bible says that Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. It says that before him, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. And in Romans 1, we see what God discovers when he looks at us. And so I want you just to, we're going to look over just just part of this now. I want you to follow along with me because... My words are not really important. God's words are what are important, and I want you to read them with me. Romans chapter chapter, uh, 1 from verse 18. It's on page 796, about halfway down the left-hand side of the page. This is what we read. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. How's that for a reality check? Now, as God looks out at the people he has lovingly created, he sees godlessness. That's what we read in verse 18. He looks out and he just sees godlessness. God's existence, we are told, can be clearly seen from what has been made. Clearly seen. You go for a walk around the harbour. You head up to the Blue Mountains where you can see the sky and have a look at the night sky. You hold a newborn baby in your arms. On the day when everyone meets God face to face for that judgment, there will be no one saying, Oh God, I had no idea you existed. Everyone knows that God exists. And yet, as a human race, we are characterized by godlessness. Most people live their lives as if God doesn't even exist. And it would be funny if it wasn't so ironic that we live lives as if God doesn't exist and yet we wouldn't even live if God didn't allow us to do so. It is a painful description of the depravity that has slipped into the whole of the human race. That while everyone knows that God exists, they neither glorify God, giving him the honor and the glory and the thanks and the praise that is due a being that is so powerful and wonderful. And they neither thank him for all of his goodness. Whenever anything goes wrong, God is always so quick to be blamed. How did God allow that to happen? When something goes well, do we thank God? Is he the first one we call up when things are going well? God has completely slipped out of our consciousness. A great and glorious God of infinite worth made us and therefore we owe him a great and glorious and infinite worship. In our minds we have made God so small and so insignificant and so nothing that for most people God would be lucky to get even a passing nod of recognition and this is the God who spoke and brought all things into creation and by whose word all things came into being. And it is God alone who is the very reason that you just took that last breath. And if God said, the breath would be no more. Can you... I don't know, I don't have the words to describe the tragedy of what is described here, that the most loving, good, beautiful, perfect being in the world has been despised, rejected, ignored, abused, 
blasphemed and mocked. And all, worst of all, by the people he lovingly created. It also tells us in verse 18 that we are wicked. What a politically incorrect description of people. To tell anyone now that they are bad is just not the done thing. This week we're told in the papers that, well, no more can you put kids in the naughty corner. Don't tell kids they're naughty. It'll be bad for their self-esteem. But God, God sees beyond the outward appearance and he looks into our hearts. To be sure, God sees what we do. God also sees the good that we fail to do. God sees the things that we think. He sees the desires of our hearts. He sees our motivations. He sees everything. It's laid bare before his eyes. And as he looks at his creation, he sees every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hating, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, disobedience, senselessness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Perhaps you are more than aware of the presence of these things in your own life. Perhaps you are not. And then I would ask you this question. If I were to say that all the things that you had done and the fail, the things, the good things that you had failed to do, every thought you had ever thought, every desire you had ever had, every motivation of your heart, everything you considered about your friends, your employer, everything that had ever passed through your mind, those things done in the secrecy of your heart, in your bedroom, in that motel room that no one else knows about, if all those things were recorded and after church tonight were to be played on this screen, who of us would you invite to come along and look at that show? It would be shameful. It would be shameful. So as we consider this, this question, how can a loving God send people to hell, we need to remember that as we look at God's description of us, we are not well-meaning people trying our best and occasionally stuffing up. That is not what God sees when he looks at us. We are sinners who do wicked, evil things. And because of this, God's wrath is coming. This sin in us is deeply, deeply offensive to God. It is an affront to his love. It is an affront to the way that he created us to live in relationship with him. And it is an affront to the way that he created us to live in perfect relationship with each other. And God hates it. He hates it. And so as we read on in Romans, it says, when God looks out, there is no one righteous, not even one. In Ephesians, we read that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, clearly, this is not a passage you would use to give a motivational talk. It's dark and it's heavy, But it's true, because God is a truth speaker. And what we're doing tonight is moving beyond assumptions and the things that we think to hear the truth that God sees. And it's not going to be 
easy as God describes us, and it's not going to get any easier as we consider hell, but that's what we're going to do now. What does the Bible say about hell? Hell, uh, hell is another politically incorrect topic, but it's a popular concept in pop culture. Uh, I reckon there is a generation of people who have an idea about hell from that famous episode of The Simpsons where Homer eats the forbidden donut uh, and hand, heads off into hell as his punishment. And uh, in some ways, um, the depiction of hell there is correct. But we've got to move beyond all these ideas about what we think hell is like and why hell exists, because it does exist, to see what the Bible says. And so I want to say three things about hell. First of all, there is no escaping the fact that hell exists. You simply cannot read the Bible and come to the conclusion that hell doesn't exist. And while some of us may wish that it didn't, it simply does. And even Jesus, the man who spoke frequently of love and was the embodiment of love and called us to love our neighbour, spoke frequently about hell. Frequently, Jesus was warning with severe language that this place exists, and his purpose was to warn people against going there. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus explains, warning against hell, that if your hand causes you to sin, or your leg causes you to sin, or your, or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out, do whatever it takes to escape hell. It's like anything that you can do in this life to avoid going there is worth it, no matter what the pain. In describing Judgment Day, Jesus said in Matthew 25 that there will be two groups of people. Some people will go to everlasting eternal punishment and the righteous will go to eternal life. Jesus spoke a lot about hell. The Bible speaks a lot about hell. As horrible a concept it is, let there be no doubt in your mind that this place exists. Secondly, hell is horrible. I don't know if you've ever heard people say this. I've heard it quite a few times. I would rather be in hell with my friends than to be in heaven with those boring Christians singing at God forever. I've heard, I don't know, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you think that yourself. Now that just comes from an incorrect understanding of hell. Some people think that hell is like choosing where you're going to stay for your holiday. We're going to stay at the Hyatt? We're going to stay at the, at the Hilton? Oh, I don't know, I'll go where my friends are. That'll be more fun. Hell is never painted in a picture like that. Let there be no mistake about it. Hell exists and hell is just what the name says, hell. The Bible uses a lot of different descriptions of hell. I'm going to run through some now and I can give them all to you afterwards. Hell is utterly fearful and dreadful. Hell is a punishment depicted as the coming misery where flesh is eaten with fire and the day of slaughter. Those in hell will fear, will feel the full fury of God's wrath. Hell is a fate worse than being drowned in the sea. Hell is a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
The wicked will be burned with unquenchable fire. They will experience unimaginable sorrow, regret, remorse, and pain. And worst of all, if I'm going to speak personally, the suffering is constant and the suffering is endless. The experience of hell never ends. It's, it's just bad. Hell is a place of pain, of suffering, of separation, of torment, of banishment from the source of all goodness and love, and it doesn't end. And it's terrible. And so... We have to ask the question, why does such a terrible place exist? Let me read to you two short passages. Romans chapter 2. God says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man, that's him, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then, he says, they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So let's keep these things clear. There is a hell. And that hell is horrible. And that hell is God's just punishment. Repeatedly, we see that hell exists as the punishment for the wicked. And so, our question tonight is, how can a loving God send people to hell? Let's just adjust for a moment this question for a little bit. How can a loving God allow injustice to be perpetrated? God, God's love does not prevent justice from being done. God's love demands that justice be done. God sees the evil in this world and he hates it. And his love and his justice demand that evil will be judged and punished. God is a loving God and God is a just God and those two things can coexist perfectly. We want justice, don't we? So many times, over and over again in our world, we see and we experience so much evil that goes on unpunished. And we want to know that God sees it and we want to know that God will do something about it. You know, maybe it must have been about two years ago now, my mum went through just a, a terrible experience. She was, 
uh, working uh, for an organisation and a new boss came in uh, and bullied her horrifically for a year. And every attempt to do anything about it led to further bullying and abuse. She was constantly mocked. She was then uh, removed from her job, unjustly sacked. Just one day turned up and said, you don't have a job here anymore. She went to complain to the CEO of the organisation. The CEO said, oh, I've heard about you. You're that troublemaker. This man, a terrible man, put my mum through a terrible situation for a year. And she still hasn't recovered from that situation to the point where she struggles even to work because all she ever hears in her mind are the terrible words that this man used to say to her every day at work. And it makes me so angry that anyone would treat my mum like that. And God sees the evil that is done in this world and it makes him angry too. And he wants something to be done about it too. You know, we saw during the week that case of, terrible case of that man who drove up to the emergency lane of the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne, took out his four-year-old child and turfed them off the edge of the bridge. How do you do that to your child? All the while, his, his son was in the backseat saying, Daddy, Darcy can't swim. And we don't say to the judge in that situation, Oh, judge, just do the loving thing. Forgive and forget. Just let it slide. That's not love. That is, that's unjust. That's wrong. We want the judge to do what is just and to punish the evil. And so the problem for us when it comes to God is that we are not just the victims of evil, and we all are. We are also, the Bible has made very clear, the, per- the perpetrators of evil. And so wicked isn't out there, wicked is in here. And what needs to be punished isn't out there, what needs to be punished is this, and you. We are all perpetrators deserving of God's punishment, God's active, just, holy wrath poured out on the disobedient. When we think about God's love, let's not think about some weak, insipid, sentimental love. God's love is furious and passionate, and he is just. Now, I'm conscious that this is hard, and some people will still be struggling, I'm sure, at this point. Some people will be thinking to themselves, perhaps this is you. Gee, that sounds harsh. Some people will be thinking... It sounds terribly unloving to punish people for eternity. Some people will be thinking, it seems very unjust and very unloving for finite crimes to be punished infinitely. I want to say that the scope of the punishment says everything about the sin. Friends, Sin is terrible. The fact that we are sinners means that we don't even understand how terrible it is. And the punishment that exists for sin reflects the worth of the one 
who has been sinned against. It is not the length of our sin that determines the degree of God's punishment, but it is the height of our sin. Degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. And we recognize this in society, don't we? I mean, if I punch Mike in the face, well, that's bad. If I punch a policeman in the face, that's worse. If I punch the queen in the face, worse still. Now, you know, uh, perhaps cheeky examples, but what happens when we punch God in the face? What's the punishment that is worthy of that crime? God who is infinitely loving, infinitely excellent, infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful, infinitely, infinitely majestic, infinitely great, infinitely loving, a God infinitely worthy of all of our love and our devotion and our attention. What would be the punishment for offending God and treating him with such scathing contempt and disregard? John Piper says this, if the person is infinitely worthy and infinitely honourable and infinitely desirable and holds an office of infinite dignity and authority, then rebuffing him is an infinitely outrageous crime. The intensity of Jesus' words about hell are not an overreaction to small offences. They are a witness to the infinite worth of God and to the outrageous dishonour outrageous dishonor of human sin. Hell is a terrible punishment. But friends, it reflects the worth of the one against whom we have sinned. This is hard. Some people uh, might be uh, feeling quite uncomfortable at this point, thinking, oh, here we go again. Church, all talking about fire and brimstone, God's judgment, sin, how terrible we are. And I'm not going to back down from any of those things. Fear is a great motivator. You know, the brother of Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, a guy called Peter Hitchens, was frightened to return to God when he came and saw the the 15th century painting in a cathedral in Europe of the Last Judgment painted up the back of the church. And he saw that and he was scared out of his brains and he turned back to God. And if fear is what causes you to turn back to God, then all the better. But I want to show you a better way. I want to share with you the greatest news that you will ever hear. It is news about God's love. And I want to say that you are in more danger than you have ever feared and you are more loved than you could have ever imagined. You are in more danger than you could have ever feared and more loved than you could possibly have imagined. Open up Bibles now. This is really important that we return back to Romans. I want us to take a look here at Romans chapter 5. It's on page 798. We're going to look from chapter 5 at verse 6. It's about halfway down the page on the right-hand side. 
says these words, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, in our godlessness, in our wickedness, God didn't pretend that those things existed. He saw them clearly for what they are. He looked down and he said, those people are sinners. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us. The punishment that you and that I deserved for the infinite offense to God, God chose, chose in his love to bear on himself. God saw us for all of the wretchedness and wickedness that we are. And because God is love. And he knew what that punishment would be for sin. God knows what it costs to pay for sin. But God didn't stand back, fold up his arms and say, sucked in, I'm going to let him go. God rolled up his sleeves and he came down into this world to bear the punishment that you and I justly deserved. And so 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was hanging out on that cross, the justice that was demanded for the sin that you and I committed was poured out with all of God's wrath and God's fury on Jesus. Pouring out. It is impossible for us to understand the pain that God was going through on that day. Jesus' body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was, as one writer said, but a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell in itself. And this, friends, is love. I don't know where you got the idea that God is loving. It is the right idea. But if you want to see that God is loving, look at God's word and see what God's love for you cost and see how God has demonstrated that love for you. There was nothing in us that made us attractive to God. We offered God nothing. We didn't throw up a couple, flush up a couple of 20s and say, hey, come down here and get us. God saw us for who we were and God came down and he rescued. And take a look at what it says in verse 9. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Justice needed to be done. God was never going to sweep our sin and our evil under the carpet. But in Jesus we have been justified. And when God looks at us, he sees not guilty. And he looks and he sees their sin paid for, dealt with, 
hell will not be their destination. It is the justifying death of Jesus that ensures that justice is done but ensures that we escape the judgment that was rightly ours. And this truly is the most incredible news in the world. There is no greater news that I could share with you than this, that you are a wretched, wicked sinner deserving of God's eternal punishment and God chose to be punished on your behalf. I experience no joy at all telling you about the horrors of hell. It is a sobering and terrible reality that shows us the greatness of our sin and the one against whom we have sinned. But I experience extreme joy in sharing with you that God has done everything necessary for you to escape the flames of hell. And an offer stands open to you today for you to claim this death and punishment that was poured out on Jesus as your own. Hell does not have to be your destination. And you may claim this as your own to thank God for all that he has done to save you from the punishment that was rightly yours and to cling to the cross as the most glorious demonstration of God's love for you. And I invite you to do that tonight. In fact, I plead with you to do that tonight. The Bible says that God is patient. And the reason that Jesus hasn't returned yet is he is waiting for more people to come back to him. Today is the day of God's mercy. And we do not know when Jesus will return. And every minute that passes by is another opportunity missed to return to God and accept his mercy. And so I plead with you now, accept Jesus' punishment as your own. I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to give us a moment to reflect on what God has done for us I realise there are many questions that this raises and I'm happy to chat afterwards. And if you would like to discuss what it means and how you might come back to God and accept his punishment as your own, please do come and speak with me afterwards as well. I'll give you a moment and then I'm going to pray. God, uh, you have spoken to us through your word tonight and we admit it is in many ways hard to hear. It is hard to hear what we are like. It is hard to hear what we deserve. But Father, it is wonderful, wonderful to hear what you have done for us 
We are a people who have deserved your punishment. Hell is our deserved destination. But you have provided a saviour who is able and who freely offers to save us from that punishment. And we thank you for Jesus. How do we thank you enough for what you have done to save us from the punishment that was ours? Father, I pray for those here tonight who have heard of your salvation for the first time. Father, may this truth be theirs and may they, for the first time tonight, accept that Jesus is the Saviour who saves them from the coming wrath.